So when I first started practice, I went, I sat on my own for a while. And then at some point I um, heard that other people might do this in groups. And so I, I found a local group. And I remember um, that when I first arrived there the first time, um, I noticed something about the people there. It's like I was kind of struck by the fact that they seemed pretty comfortable with themselves. You know, not in a complacent or arrogant way, but they were just, you know, they were just okay with who they were. And I think it stood out for me because at that time I wasn't particularly comfortable with who I was. And so I had this sense of, I want what they have. <laughs> there was sort of that feeling. And I've heard this from a lot of people. It's not always about that exact quality. But there's a sense that when we encounter the Dharma in some way, we get this feeling like, I want what she's got, or I want what he's got. And there's um, sort of a healthy modeling that we do where we see qualities in somebody else and consider that that would be good for us too in some way. And so I wanted to talk tonight about the kind of the quality of of modeling or of inspiration in the Dharma, because this is actually well recognized. Uh, it was it's not drawn out in I would say in an explicit way sometimes, like you know the there isn't a sutta called the modeling sutta as far as I know. But it's very commonly threaded throughout the texts in many different ways, uh, recognized as a phenomenon and highly praised to, uh, to do that. So I guess I'll just approach it from a number of different angles, starting with um, the idea of the spiritual friend. And this is, um, you know, kalyanamita is the word for it. And we're often uh, encouraged to make friends who are, you know, also practitioners. And there's a, it's even listed, like when there are important qualities given of, you know, these are the qualities that you'll need to succeed in the Dharma. If spiritual friendship is on that list, which it often is, it's usually uh, the first it's like, this is the foundation. You have to start here by knowing other people that are doing this also. Because this work is too hard to do just completely by yourself for most people. Obviously, a Buddha can do that. Uh, but even the Buddha had teachers. Just uh, He just went a little farther than them. So there's a sense that we're going to be connecting with other people who are doing this. So at a fundamental level, why is that so important? You know, what is the basis for that being necessary? Basically, it's because our minds are malleable. We take on the qualities of those people that we're hanging around with. That's just how it works. And this is actually a good thing. If the mind were not malleable, how could we progress on the path? So it's absolutely necessary that we be changeable and influenceable, but that means that there comes with that some responsibility. 
to pay attention to how we're being changed and influenced by those around us. If we associate well, we'll shape our minds to have more wholesome qualities and to practice the Dharma well. And if we associate with unwise people, people who are focused on sense pleasures and anger and other things like that, well, then we'll get drawn into that. And we may end up doing harm to ourselves and others. So these are important to to keep in mind. The Buddha says, I see no other thing that is so much responsible for the arising of unwholesome qualities in a person as poor friendship and nothing so helpful for the arising of wholesome qualities as good friendship. So that's pretty clear. Um, There's also a more colorful version of this that I kind of like that says, a person who wraps rotting fish in a blade of kusa grass makes the grass smelly. So it is if you seek out fools. But a person who wraps powdered incense in the leaf of a tree makes the leaf fragrant. So it is if you seek out the enlightened. So that's pretty clear also. So, you know, we're not intended to leave uh, our friendships up to chance. You know, we can deliberately choose people that um, seem wise to us and deliberately associate with them. So there might be some effort involved. Actually, it's often some of the first real effort that we make on the path. I often, as a teacher, I talk with people, and there's, there's a predictable um, transition point that comes a little bit into people's practice where they come and they say, I feel like... Uh, I don't like hanging out with some of my friends as much as I used to since I've started meditating, but I don't want to hurt them or give them up. What do I do? This is one of the first questions people come with. I think I'll just leave that hanging. (laughs) Um, The Buddha also talks about you know, what is a wise friend? What is a, are the qualities of someone who is a Kalyanamita, in case you were looking? And what sort of relationship should we have with them? And there are some, there are some guidelines given about this. There's a sutta called Four Qualities to Look for and Emulate in a Friend. So that's pretty clear. Uh, they are faith, or sadha, virtue, sila, generosity, chaga, and wisdom, panya. So these are qualities that we look for, people who have faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. And it says, this is under the conditions for welfare. Somebody asked the Buddha, what is good friendship? The layperson. And he says, herein, in whatsoever village or market town a householder dwells, he associates, converses, engages in discussion, with householders or householders' sons, whether young and highly cultured or old and highly cultured, full of faith, full of virtue, full of generosity, full of wisdom. He acts in accordance with the faith of the faithful, with the virtue of the virtuous, with the generosity of the generous, and with the wisdom of the wise. This is called good friendship. So, you know, we all have people in our lives who exemplify certain good qualities, like, you know, our wise old grandmother, or our 
generous neighbor who was always willing to help in some way. And so we're encouraged to use our discernment to notice if somebody has good qualities and then pick those out and emulate them ourselves. And he doesn't say that we have to find somebody who has all of these qualities totally exemplified all the time. We just find that somebody has, you know, more of one of those. And we say, oh, I think I'd like to, you know, I'd like to develop that somewhat, or I'd like to be around that. And so we emphasize that in our relationship with that person as we think, oh, yeah, I really admire her generosity and sort of notice that about her. It's a nice practice to think in that way. We do have to be a little bit careful not to slide into the what's called the subtle aggression of self-improvement of continually comparing ourselves to other people and saying, well, I'm not as wise as her, and I'm not as generous as him, and I'm not as faithful, and so forth, we can sort of end up focusing on our own um, downsides in that way, or apparent, you know, supposed detriments. So there's a balance. Um, after all, somebody may be emulating us. I mean, who knows? All of us have good qualities in this room, so we can think of ourselves that way too. Um, but this is just uh, meant to be held lightly, you know, to... Uh, be aware that there's treasure all around us and we can associate with and absorb that. So these are um, these are some qualities that are related for, you know, directly for lay people. They're talked about in relation to other lay people and they're obviously highly relevant for our daily lives here. But I wanted also to touch on the ways in which um, monastics play a role in in being emulatable. That's actually one of their functions, interestingly. Um, You know, what is the purpose of a monastic in the world? The story about them is that they're the fourth heavenly messenger, or at least people who are seekers are the fourth heavenly messenger where the first three are aging, illness, and death, and those are the things that wake us up, and we say, whoa, uh, this is something that I need to deal with in my life. I, um, I need to understand these and, and try not to suffer from them. But there is a, a fourth uh, heavenly messenger, which is somebody who is living their lives according to the, um, you know, the principles of seeking, of trying to find a way out of aging, illness, and death, and the, the role of monastics is partly to be seen, is to um, exemplify that and to embody that. You know, they're not all fully enlightened, but they've taken on publicly the task of ending suffering. And so they provide some kind of a role model, not intending necessarily that everybody needs to ordain or that you're not as good if you're, you're not there yet if you haven't ordained. Some future lifetime you'll get there. It's not meant to be that way, uh, just more that it's really helpful that there are people who are um, embodying that. And there's in particular um, this, there's one um, monk who was said to have the greatest number of qualities that are said to inspire faith in others, uh, and that was the monk Kasapa. And 
he was also known to be foremost in the ascetic practices. So we may or may not want to imitate those. But there are a number of non-ascetic practices like the harmful ones that the Buddha engaged in before he realized that that wasn't the way to go. There are another set of practices that are not quite so um, self-detrimental that the Buddha praised, you know, things like only having exactly the three robes, like not having two sets of robes, for example. Um, There are some monastics that live that way. Or only going on alms round and not accepting meals that are offered in householders' homes, for example, things like that. So there was one monk who was really into that. And there are um, a couple of suttas. There's actually a whole section of this um, set of discourses. It's called the Kasapa Samyutta. It's the uh, discourses related to Kasapa. And he was um, well known for uh, having these good qualities. I want to just talk a little bit about um, a little bit about him and about some of the things that he said. Just I think they're interesting and potentially inspiring. They sort of kind of go beyond the level of just imitating the generosity of our neighbor. So a little bit about his story is that um, Kasapa was a wealthy um, householder, and he um, didn't want to be married because he always wanted to ordain. He said, I want to live the ascetic life. He told his parents he didn't want to get married. But they arranged a marriage for him anyway. Um, actually, he said that he would only marry if he was if um, they could find a woman who exemplified the perfection of beauty. And he had a statue made in gold that was incredibly beautiful. Uh, and he said, "Find me a woman like this, and I'll marry her." And so he thought, "No problem. <laughs> They'll never be able to find that." And they went off to some, you know, some land that was known for having especially beautiful women. And they found a woman who was, who actually looked exactly like the statue. And um, so they said, there, we found her. But it turns out that she didn't want to get married either because she wanted to be a nun. So there's some karma going on there, right? Um, and there's a complicated thing where each one wrote the other a letter and said, you sound great, but really I want to be an ascetic, and so please go marry somebody else. And the parents um, knew that this was going on, figured that this was going to happen, and so they intercepted the letters, and they swapped them for letters that said, I'd love to marry you um, from each (laughs) side. And so I won't go off too much on this story. It's a great story, though. (laughs) But they um, they do end up getting married, but they they never had sex because they really wanted to ordain instead. And eventually it came about that they could separate and follow their real dreams. So... What Kasapa does is that he you know, he gets the idea that he really he just you know he says now is the time, and so he um, he shaves off his hair and his beard and he gets a rope made you know probably something like this where it wasn't exactly the right size and it was kind of patched together because he wasn't he didn't have a teacher he didn't he just knew that he wanted to ordain and so he um, kind of had a robe made. And he declared, um, he said, Acknowledging those who were arahants in the world as models, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the robe, and went forth from the household life into homelessness. So he basically ordained himself in the, um, in the presence uh, as models of, he said, any arahants that there are in the world, I, um, I, in regard and in respect to you, 
I put on this robe and I shave my head. And so um, that's pretty good, actually. So he went forth in that way. And because of that act, um, the Buddha was uh, heard about this, like sort of through his supernatural knowledge. He understood that this had happened and somebody who was very, very faithful had, um, had finally stepped out of the home life and gone into homelessness. And so he arranged to be sitting by the road when Kasapa went by and um, you know, in his newly put on robe. And um, so Kasapa, of course, being you know, pretty attuned at that point, recognizes the Buddha. Uh, he doesn't know who the Buddha is, but he knows that he wants to find someone who's completely enlightened. That's the only person who's going to be his teacher. And so he sees the Buddha sitting by the side of the road, and something in his mind says, that, that's the guy. <laughs> and so he, um, he prostrates himself, and he bows to the Buddha, and he says, um, Venerable Sir, the Blessed One is my teacher, and I am his disciple. And, um, and the Buddha says, um, he's very impressed, and he says, Kasapa, if one who does not know and does not see should say to a disciple so sincere as yourself, I know, I see, his head would split. So he says, basically he says, you are so sincere that if anybody were to declare in your presence that they know and see when they don't, you know, that they claim to be enlightened when they're not, they would instantly die because you, your sincerity would expose them. Uh, their lie. And then he says, but knowing, Kasapa, I say I know, and seeing, I say I see. So in his, in Kasapa's presence, the Buddha declares his own enlightenment, and of course his head doesn't split. And so that forms the bond between them. It's a really sweet story. Uh, there's a, the legends say that they have a long karmic history, and they had known each other many times. And and he gives Kasapa meditation instructions, and Kasapa is just a total um, house—not a householder anymore, but just an ordinary person at that point. But he receives the instructions very well, and he becomes an arhant in eight days. So, pretty good. But it's—it's it's an interesting story, right? And he—he's true all the time to his sense that he really just wants to practice. He loves jhana, he most jhana, so practicing the concentration. He mostly lives in the cave. He mostly does the ascetic practices. And the other monks that, that he attracts to be his students are like that too. And then, um, then I'll, I'll tell one more story about him, because he ends up being quite a model, quite an exemplar to the, to the monks, especially the ones that are a little bit, you know, go into the holy life because they want better food or you know, because um, you get regular meals if you're a monk. And so he was always pretty tough with them. But there comes a time, um, this sutta is called old. And there comes a time where Kasapa is very old. And um, he was actually older than the Buddha, um, although he does end up uh, living longer than the Buddha. But he, um, he comes to see the Blessed One, comes to see the Buddha, and the Buddha says, you are old now, Kasapa, and those worn-out hempen rag robes must be burdensome for you. Therefore, you should wear robes offered by householders, accept meals given on invitation, and dwell close to me. 
It basically says, you're getting old. Don't go, don't keep living up in the cave and wearing these robes and just going on alms round. You know, come and sit near, come and be near me. You'll get better offerings. You'll get better food. You should do this for yourself. And Kasika says, for a long time, venerable sir, I've been a forest dweller and have spoken in praise of forest dwelling. I've been an alms food eater and have spoken in praise of eating alms food. I've been a rag robe wearer and have spoken in praise of wearing rag robes. I've been a few wishes and have spoken in praise of fewness of wishes, etc. There's a few more things. And he says, um, he basically says, I like it this way. Um, and the Buddha says, well then, considering what benefit have you done all of this? Why have you been an ascetic so strongly your whole life? And he says, considering two benefits. For myself, I see a pleasant dwelling in this very life, and I have compassion for later generations, thinking, may those of later generations follow my example. For when they hear the enlightened disciple of the Buddha for a long time was a forest dweller and spoken praise of forest dwelling, etc., they may practice accordingly, which will lead to their welfare and happiness for a long time. So it's quite beautiful that in the end, you know, he doesn't say, I did all this because I'm a tough guy and I think the household life sucks and I think the world should be, um, you know, pushed away and um, all this. He says, first of all, if I like it. I find it pleasant. I'm content with very little. And he also says, uh, may it be a model for others that they would be inspired, that that's possible, that an enlightened person lives in this way, maybe I should live in that way too in order to become enlightened. Obviously we're not all going to do that, but it's, a, it's considered compassionate to live your life in a way that you feel would be of benefit if other people emulated you. This is praised a number of times in the suttas. And this is an individual thing. Not everybody lived like Kasapa. Ananda didn't, Sariputta didn't, they were all, Ananda became enlightened later. These were all, you know, very powerful disciples of the Buddha. So the teaching is that you become a model when you live in accordance with the way that works for you. And that actually becomes attractive to others who are going to be able to succeed in that way too. So you might consider for yourself to what degree are you living very well in alignment with your values and what you know reduces your own suffering because that's actually a compassionate act to live in that way. Others will see that it's, it's a way of living without much suffering. And some people, not 100%, but some people will be inspired and be able to follow that and reduce their suffering too. And then I want also to share this teaching about the Buddha. Um, there are a number of suttas where the Buddha describes his own enlightenment. There's one particularly famous one, but there's another one that's not as well known, and it's called um, Fear and Dread, and it paints a very human picture of the Buddha. It's from MN4. And the reason I'm just including this here is that the... Um, the setup for the story, like it set up for the teaching. Uh, these these teachings are often in the form of kind of a story within a story. There's like a 
the setup, and then there's the teaching, and then you return at the end to the setup. And so the setup in this one is that a Brahmin um, named Janu Soni, the Brahmins were the hereditary religious class of India at that time. So a Brahmin who's learned the three Vedas, he's you know, done all the classical um, pre-proto-Hindu uh, kinds of practices that, are, that were common in that class at that time. He comes to the Buddha and he basically complains that practice is hard. <laughs> and he says, um, you know, it's really hard to attain concentration. It's hard to live in the forest. It's hard to do all of this. And the Buddha says, um, and then he asks the Buddha, do people take you as their model? And the Buddha says, yes. He says, when people go, well, he says, when people go forth out of faith, do they take Master Gotama as their leader, their helper, and their guide? And do they follow the example of Master Gotama? And the Buddha replies with a hearty yes. He says, that is so, Brahman, that is so. And so that's the very beginning of the sutta. And so we're told that basically the sutta is going to be um, telling us something about the Buddha that can be imitated or followed, used as a model in some way. And then, um, then, he, then he goes on and complains that practice is hard. He says, but Master Gotama, remote jungle, jungle thicket resting places in the forest are hard to endure. Seclusion is hard to practice, and it is hard to enjoy solitude. One would think that the jungles must rob a practitioner of his mind if he has no concentration. And the Buddha doesn't say, oh, no, 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 it's much easier than that. Actually, the Buddha says, that is so, Brahman, that is so. <laughs> so he agrees with him again. You're like, huh, okay, where is this going? So um, the Buddha then goes on, interestingly, to talk about his own fear, uh, his own fear when he was not yet enlightened about um, living in the forest and the things that he was going to encounter there. But he's, he models, this is, this is a sutta about modeling, he models first, telling the Brahmin, yeah, I was scared, but I, I reflected as I was going in to do my ascetic practice, my forest practice, I reflected that I have good qualities of ethical conduct, of loving-kindness, of capacity for mindfulness, etc. So he reflects very carefully that he actually possesses a lot of wholesome states and that that is somehow going to be helpful as he goes in to do his practice. So he's basically saying that reflecting on our good qualities is the basis for being able to do challenging Dharma practice. So it's another question you can ask yourself. Do you regularly reflect on your good qualities? This is worth emulating, uh, people who do that. It's In our society, we tend to think that's a little bit you know, egotistical. I'm not supposed to think about how good I am. Um, and of course, we shouldn't think that we're good in the sense that we're better than everybody else. That's not helpful. But he didn't say that. He just says, I know I have these qualities. I know I have these capacities. I've, done practi- I've developed myself in certain ways. These things are going to be reliable supports for me. And so we can do that, too. We can do that, too. So then, um, the Buddha decides, he tells the Brahmin, that he deliberately chose to go to places that are scary in order to work with his fear and dread. So this is interesting. So, first of all, even for the Buddha, there was fear and dread before he was enlightened. My teacher says, 
uh, any spiritual practice worth its salt will eventually bring fear. So we can keep that in mind. Um, I guess we could ask, why is that? You know, why does the spiritual path eventually bring fear? And it's basically because we have to let go of things that we think are real, are necessary, but actually aren't. We don't know that. But we think, we believe at some very basic level that certain things have to be true, certain beliefs that we've been living by, most notably the belief in ourself as an entity uh, traveling in an external world of fixed objects. Uh, that one's not true, but we believe it very strongly. And when we start getting a lot of evidence in our meditation that that's not the case, we get a lot of fear because we don't know uh, what we're going to have to you know, we don't know how to let go of that, basically. So we have to let go of a lot of unhelpful ideas about ourselves, our life, our way of doing things. But we've always believed that these were necessary for our well-being. And so having that challenge brings up fear, just so you know. So then the Buddha turned turn toward that, though. He said, this is what I have to do. I really need to, I'm going to have to let go of these things that aren't helpful. And so he seeks out places that um, might be scary in order to encounter his own fears. I mean, this is somewhat metaphorical, I think. Um, But the implication is we should have a look at where we think we're clinging, and then to the degree that we feel we can do that, uh, step into situations that will challenge that in some way. We don't often encourage this too much in the West because sometimes Westerners take this a little too seriously and kind of go for it a little bit too much. But um, it is worth asking if we're sufficiently challenging ourselves in practice. There is a um, there's a prayer that Thai Buddhist monks do. It basically says, um, "May I be given appropriate challenges." And what that means is ones that are not so challenging that I am broken or traumatized, but that are challenging enough that I'm going to let go. They're not challenging enough. You don't have to let go. So finding that, may I have appropriate challenges in my my practice and in my life. It's a nice wish. So what happened when the Buddha went and had his encounter with fear and dread? He went and did walking meditation in the forest at night with tigers and bears and snapping twigs, and he was afraid. Forest at night is kind of scary, actually. At one time I went out in the forest at night when I was on a long retreat. I was drawn out at about midnight into the forest at IMS. And um, it doesn't look the same in the dark as it does in the light, let me say. Um, I was a little scared. So um, remember that this is our model. And the Buddha has very interesting instructions. He basically says, I didn't bring the book with me, but he says that when fear arose, whatever posture he was in, he maintained that posture. So he says, if fear arose while I was walking, I neither sat, nor lay down, nor walked, you know, walking, sitting, nor stood. I continued to walk. And so if it arose when I was sitting, I neither walked, nor stood, nor lay down. I continued sitting. So he just said whatever posture he was in, he continued doing that. And 
this is, we know this is challenging. Like sometimes if we're doing sitting meditation, if a lot comes up, we, we have all sorts of reasons to go clean out the refrigerator, get that cup of tea, did I turn off the stove? You know, this is so that we're, we would change our posture. <laughs> and so, um, so the, the implication, I think this could also be somewhat metaphorical, is that we just keep doing what we were doing. You know, we don't get cowed by the fear. We say, that's fear, but I'm sitting. That's fear, but I'm walking. That's fear, but this is what I'm doing. And so it's an interesting instruction. He just keeps doing what he's doing. Ajahn Suchito says that part of our practice is to replace fear with awareness. And as soon as I heard that phrase um, from him, I immediately thought of this sutta, replace fear with awareness. So when fear comes, we think, oh, I'm going to have to let go of something cherished. We replace that with awareness. That's what's happening. I'm being asked to let go. I'm just experiencing fear. And slowly over time, I think we gain greater and greater capacity of mind to be with challenging feelings, challenging impulses, not needing to react, not needing to change our posture so to speak, even our mental posture of awareness. Georgia O'Keefe says, I have been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. So, I mean, that might not literally be true every moment of her life, but the implication is pretty clear that fearlessness is not about not having fear, it's about not complying with fear, not giving in to the fear. So, in the sutta about the Buddha, when he um, just stays doing the same thing, regardless of whether there's fear, he ends up uh, entering deep concentration. And the fear loses strength, loses strength, and uh, jhana is a state of fearlessness. And so, he goes through the jhanas, and then he has the uh, insights that lead to awakening. So it's another, uh, it's a, dis- a good a description of his awakening. And basically, he saw, he had three insights. He saw his own past lives. He saw how beings are reborn according to their karma. And then he saw how everything works. He saw the Four Noble Truths and how the, they lead to the end of suffering, understanding them. So, the sutta then, it doesn't end there. It doesn't just end with the Buddha's enlightenment. It goes back <coughs> to the scene with the Brahman, John Soni. And um, the Brahman, I love these Brahmins. It's like he's just been told, the Buddha just gave him his enlightenment story, you know, about he comes and says, practice is hard. And the Buddha says, yeah, I used to think it was hard, and here's what I did. And then he describes, you know, the awakening of his own mind. And the Brahmin says, so are you still working on that fear? You still, are you, maybe you come and do practice, you're still practicing in the forest because you're still working with fear. It's like he doesn't get that the Buddha was saying that he's given it up. And so the Buddha says, no, dear Brahmin, I don't have to practice with my fear anymore, but I do still practice in the forest for two reasons. And this will sound familiar. He says, a pleasant abiding for myself here and now and out of compassion for future generations. 
So, you know, why did the Buddha keep meditating? He even still went on retreat after he was awake. Why? He didn't have to do any of that. Um, but he did it, first of all, because it's pleasant. <laughs> and also because he wanted to model that that's how we should practice. We should meditate. We should go on retreat periodically. We should live in community. And he pray, He why does he praise all these people? He doesn't need to offer praise. He's not trying to get merit. Um, but he praises people who are doing those things. Why? So that we'll know who to model off of. So modeling is very important in this. Our mind is trainable. And, you know, we do attain enlightenment um, individually in, this, in a sense that I can't enlighten somebody else and somebody else can't enlighten me. We do it ourselves through our own realization. But it's very much a process of uh, emulating and modeling and imitating, fake it till you make it, something like that. Um, so, you know, this is very much a, a practice where we're influencing each other. And so, I find this actually quite inspiring in that I can hone my wisdom by looking for qualities in others to emulate. And I also feel a sense then also of... Um, heedfulness about my own actions so that I am an exemplar for others to whatever degree I'm capable of at my, you know, what I understand right now. So it creates a very nice collective atmosphere, this understanding of modeling. Those are my thoughts on that. Does anyone have any anything to add or ask? Are you modeling? Yeah, Michael. I'm wondering what kind of advice you give to people who ask you about uh, their friends that they're <laughs> they want to spend less time with. Oh yeah, I left that one open, didn't I? Um, my understanding is that it tends to work itself out. Is that um, it's not so much that you need to deliberately let go of people that it seems like you're not resonating as much with anymore after the after your practice starts. But just start adding. You know, just add a few friends from here, for example, or from, um, yeah, find some Dharma friends and just add them into the rotation of the friends that you hang out with. And then over time, somehow the proportion seems to change. And um, it can change in a number of ways. People who are really not interested in the Dharma if you become very interested in it, they'll become less interested in you, too. And it just and it, there's no falling out, there's no argument. It's just, you know, how many people in your life did you used to be friends with? And it kind of drifted away from over time. It's, it's just a natural process. Or it may be that they um, decide to emulate some of your good qualities, and the friendship, they may not become Dharma practitioners. Please don't um, proselytize too much. <laughs> But, you know, the friendship may continue but change because they um, pick up on your good qualities and so it enters a different level or something. Yeah, I found it tends to just be, tends to naturally work itself out. Um, but the advice I give is to add Dharma friends, you know, to whatever mix you have. Just add some. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Rex. Crystallize 
recognize it exactly, but uh, I almost felt like I was raised to believe that there's only one kind of learning, and that is to be explicitly taught something. We go to school to be taught things. Right. And we read a book in order to learn things from the book. Right. And that there's this other method of basically being around wholesome people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it occurs at a whole different level. Yeah. And, and it's not like but there isn't anything in school that says you should hang out with wholesome people. So. <laughs> well, the school's more about intellectual learning, which is what you're talking about, and that's certainly a valid kind of learning. If we didn't do any of that, we wouldn't have as much access to other things, just the way society is set up. Um, but intellectual learning only goes so deep. Um, and other types can uh, are needed to be fully integrated. I see. So, yeah, the people that we don't get a choice about associating with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you have a lot of family that will live in your view and you care about them, that's a lot of your life. Mm-hmm. It is. Much less of them. Certainly you have other you have friends too, but it's, it's not as, um, not like you have as much. And someone's mm-hmm. personalities can be difficult. I agree. <laughs> Sometimes they say um, if if you go, like if you go on a retreat and, they, and you feel you know really great at the end of the retreat, like oh you know I've I've attained enlightenment after three days of sitting and walking, they say the real test is when you go home with your family. <laughs> you know how you carry that in. Definitely, um, if you know if that's the way our life is set up, then that's what we have to work with. I I would say that there are still opportunities. Um, to bring in the ideas that were talked about here, in that um, we can create ways to have other relationships. For example, um, in my life, I've created a relationship with the, the written teachings. So they aren't exactly people, um, they aren't people, but um, I find these wisdom teachings very meaningful to me. And uh, so the time that you spend reading, you could spend reading. Uh, Dharma books, or you know, even the original texts, and start having a relationship that's just for you. That can be quite intimate with the wisdom teachings that have come to us over the years. So that's another way to create a relationship. Um, we usually have time for some things like that in our lives. If if it's only reading over the breakfast table or half an hour before we go to bed, there are other ways to create relationships, um, even if we have certain fixed ones in our lives. Or we can, and through that, we may begin to have more of these um, modelable qualities and gain some strength in them so that they don't get drained away as quickly in other people's presence. And that will actually change the other people. Again, we can't expect, we can't demand, um, but there are subtle ways in which um, we will meet with circumstances that are more conducive through the deliberate effort to cultivate the teachings in our lives, whether it's through modeling people or reading books or what whatnot. It's a good question. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.